Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome from South Africa, Dr. Andre Creer. People call him Dr. Andre Kruger. He is called the Fast Doctor at the-fast-doctor.com. He is also part owner of the Hoogland Health Hydro, a medical spa in South Africa, And I've invited him on the show at the request of one of our listeners who felt that we really need to talk about the subject of fasting and another philosophy of how to detox and keep the body healthy. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Andre Creer from South Africa. Good evening. Thank you, Kim, for the introduction. My pleasure. Talk a little bit about the kind of doctor you are, set a context for our listeners so they know how to receive you. My interests have always been in the sciences, and I first qualified in physics and in chemistry. I went farming, and I was almost killed. And when I awoke in a hospital a few days later, I was very upset that the doctors walking around me would talk in words that um, even a graduated scientist couldn't quite understand. So I studied medicine. And at that same time, I got a very deep interest in what we would refer to as nature cure. I believe that Mother Nature represents the greatest scientist in the universe. Nature has wonderful, wonderful forces that makes life possible. And the same forces that makes life possible makes health possible. So wherever we can, we study the mechanisms behind how nature really sticks together, try to expand that to how to keep ourselves healthy by reverting more to our natural environment. Having said that, we have to appreciate that in today's world, We no longer live in a totally natural environment. And therefore, sometimes the laws of nature alone cannot protect us from the ravages of civilization. We have to be grateful for having science behind us, having modern medicine, having modern surgery. My own life has been saved at least twice by the intervention of medicine and surgery. So there's a place for orthodox medicine, and I've qualified in orthodox medicine. Currently, I like to keep a little bit of a hand in two extremes of the medical field, namely pure nature care, where we avoid all forms of medicine, and the one hand, and on the other hand, emergency medicine. When I work overseas, from us overseas means Europe or the States or New Zealand, places where I've worked. I typically work in emergency medicine. But where I'm sitting right now, this wonderful little paradise located in a place called the cradle of humankind, we try to practice primarily nature care. Now, why this environment of us is called the cradle of humankind is this is the place on the planet where our earliest human ancestors' fossils were found. The famous Terkfontein is not too far from us, and it's on the same geological structure contained fossils of our ancestors of roughly 2 million years ago. 
The interesting thing is these fossils contain a calcium-magnesium ratio in the bone which is identical to ours today and which is identical to the dolomite formations on which they were found. So I have a huge respect for the powers of nature. And I do believe that when we study science, we are actually studying nature because nature or with all respect said, the creation that we live in is following certain laws of nature. And having studied these laws, we get to better understand ourselves and better understand how our bodies and our minds work. Therefore, we have to apply the laws of nature when we want to achieve optimal health. Optimal health, of course, is what we all strive for. Optimal health is something very elusive. The World Health Organization, for example, describes health as a state of complete physical, mental, social, sociological, material, well-being. Something which, of course, we cannot achieve on this planet, but at least we can strive to achieve that. And in striving towards achieving what cannot be achieved, at least it keeps us on course. First of all, I want to know what you mean by the laws of nature. Can you talk a little bit about that? Give us some pieces of that. Well, there's several laws of nature. The most basic laws of nature is found in physics. For example, that energy always moves from a higher temperature to a lower temperature. Things with weight always try to move to where they can move no further. But in the context of health, we have to accept that our bodies evolved in an environment which supplied to it a certain climate, a certain form of nutrient, a certain form of shelter, a certain amount and kind of physical exercise. And therefore, if we strive to regain the ultimate health, we would likely find the guidelines to achieving optimal health by studying nature. I want to bring it down a little bit. Your altitude is extremely high, and those of us that fly at 35,000 feet are not used to talking to someone flying at 70,000 feet. I want to bring you down to 35,000 feet, and I want you to articulate, if you would, for the audience, something you shared with me last week or the other day when we spoke about the philosophy of health and cleansing and this whole issue you have about supplements and how to get the best health out of the body. I thought it was interesting, and I'd like you to share it with the audience. Thank you, Kim. In a nutshell, if we are unwell, it stands to reason to accept that what makes us unwell is in us. Therefore, if you have a tummy ache, there's something in you that gives you a tummy ache. If you have a headache, there's something in you that gives you a headache. If you have chronic fatigue, there's something in you that makes you chronically fatigued. If you can't sleep well, there's something in you that prevents you from sleeping well. <clears throat> if you can't think well, there's something in you that prevents you from thinking well. To get to a higher state of health, 
can be achieved not by putting things into you, but by allowing things to get out of you. And that is why the most powerful single healing tool on this planet is fasting. That means going for reasonably long periods of time without food, without eating. Going back to nature, that is what we observe. When I look around me, I have a lot of wild animals in this game reserve that the Wurgland Hydro is situated in. And when I observe how they deal with disease, for example, I know one of these animals are ill when I notice they stop eating. Interesting, if they stop eating for a while, they get better, and then they start eating again. Perhaps it is in our instinct to know if our children are unwell, they will not eat. If they are well, they will eat. And therefore, we have developed in our culture this bad habit of whenever anybody is unwell, we want to make them eat. We will bribe them, we will coerce them, we will force them, we will blackmail them into eating, perhaps because it whitewashes our own conscience. Health, however, or getting rid of disease, is best achieved by allowing something to come out of your body, not by putting things into your body. I'd like to quickly quote here from the New England Journal of Medicine. It's an American publication. And the following sentence says, Each year, Americans spend more than $28 billion on supplements, assuming that they are both safe and effective. But there is absolutely no proof that they are safe or effective. I'd like to cut in right here just to give you my bias just so you know in the conversation. Part of it is my bias, and part of it is that a lot of these institutions are not for the health of the American people. They are also aligned with the pharmaceutical companies. They are in cahoots with falsified studies. They are a disaster. They will do whatever they can to take every supplement, anything, including food, including seeds, off the market, so that the American people have trash. I get the context of the thought that it's possible for some supplements not to work or not to be effective. Your philosophy is different. It's not the New England Journal of Medicine. So when you bring in the New England Journal of Medicine, I could tell you stuff that the USDA, the FDA, the American Medical Association, the people that do health studies, the institutions, big ones, National Institute of Health sabotage a seven-year study with Dr. Gonzalez about nutrition. They falsified documents. They lied. There was so much criminality, it's unbelievable. So it's very hard for me, knowing what I know, the number of people I've talked to over all these years, 400 segments done, thousands of hours, not only by me, but by other people of the criminal activity going on in the agencies in the United States to make sure that Americans are not healthy. Whatever they say about supplements, your philosophy is of much more interest to me than theirs. <laughs> That's my bias. I could care less what they say. 
I care what you have to say. Let's hear from you. From my point of view, there's no difference between a thing called a supplement and a thing called a medicine. Why? Because they go from exactly the same philosophy, namely that when you want to be well, you have to buy something made in a factory and put it into your body. And there's very little difference indeed between allopathic, homeopathic, Ayurvedic, or any other source of so-called medicine. All of them says, take money out of your pocket, give it to me, I will give you something that I made in some factory, and I'm going to put it into you, and that's going to make you better. Now, for me, there's no difference between whether I say that thing was made by uh, Roche Pharmaceuticals or something calling themselves natural. Many of these so-called natural products manufacturers are simply subsidiaries of the big pharmaceutical well, industry. Well, definitely some of them are. All of them aren't. But I want to clarify one thing just so the audience is clear and I'm clear in listening to you and engaging with you. The central distinction has to do with both require ingestion as the manifest mechanism to induce health, and they both require an expenditure of money. And so you're saying there's no distinction between Ayurvedic, homeopathic, allopathic, and all that, correct? Did I read you right? They are in the same category. If we are unwell, there's something in us that makes us unwell. And we don't get that something out of us by putting things into us. There is a place for putting medicine into people, and particularly when you work in serious emergencies like I see from time to time. You see drugs saving lives. If you've ever seen a person drowning in an asthma and you see how you can get it out with some drug, get a person out of close death to non-disease, it's wonderful to see. What you just described is wonderful. What's more wonderful to me is to see them not having asthma and a prevention context. And that's where I look to supplementation of things that are missing from the food supply, the seed supply, the air and the water, let alone our bodies. But go ahead, please continue. I perspective is there's nothing missing from our environment. There's a lot of things in our environment that should not be there. That's what makes us sick. Correct. Adding more things. Even though we use these terms that is easy to market, calling them supplement, calling them vitamin, calling them whatever you want, the main reason for calling them that is to sell them. For example, omega-3 fatty acids. That, that is told, we were told that the modern diet is deficient in omega-3 fatty acids. Which, by the way, I don't accept either, thank God. I don't agree with that either, but go ahead. <laughs> in the archives of internal medicine, that's a pure academic publication over five years, have found that women taking omega-3 fatty acids have a three-fold greater risk of developing cancer and a five-fold increased risk of dying from cancer. And do you know how often this specific supplement, for example, is Talented. marketed as cure for cancer or a preventive for cancer? So the distinction between real nature cure and all of the chemical industries. Now, if I say chemical industries, I include 
the pharmaceutical and the supplements in one category. The big difference is some wants to put things into you and some wants to take it out. Now, in uh, My Health News Daily, that's uh, also an American publication, Professor Longo from University of Southern California, for example, have published an interesting article where they found that regular fasting, I guess you say fasting, makes it lost worse for cancer cells, but not for healthy cells. And they have done an interesting study where they found that if people have a cancer and they stop eating totally when they take their chemotherapy, they stop vomiting. They no longer get any side effects from the chemotherapy because apparently during a period of fasting, your healthy cells goes into a form of hibernation. That means they stop dividing. But cancer cells are unable to do that. They've lost that ability. So when you are not eating, the cancer cells, by trying to keep on dividing, they starve and they die. Now, our ancestors, until probably less than 100 years ago, were, unlike us today, exposed to regular periods of famine. There were times of plenty and there were times when there were simply no foods. Do you know what is the incidence of cancer in the Western world today? Do you know how many people get it? What is it, like 30%? If you are 70 years old today and you're a woman, your chance of having a cancer is 54%. If you're a man, it's about 57%. So more than half of all people. What is your fundamental assumption about what is inducing cancer? Because I want to know for sure that your fundamental assumption, it's not just from food. I believe it is from too much nutrients. We get too many vitamins, too many minerals, too much protein, too much nutrients which means that the weak and the sick and the abnormal cells in the body no longer starves to death like they used to in nature. They are kept alive. It is proven recently that people on health food do not survive as well as people on junk food when they have a cancer. They get much less. They get much less of it. But once it's there, apparently cancer succumbs to malnutrition easier than your normal cells. Healthy cells can survive periods of hardship, but bad cells cannot survive periods of hardship. So by us giving our bodies too many nutrients, we have removed this selective periods of hardship which selected only the good, healthy cells to survive. And we are keeping the sick, unhealthy cells alive by having too many nutrients. Okay, now hold that thought for just a moment. I want to go back to what you said is one of the two factors causing cancer. And I want to say this to you. I do really understand what you're saying. And I think you're on to something. But I want to say this. When you come from that your peace 
that which you have observed as so is the central nervous system of the problem. Like your identification of what is causing cancer is the problem. I prefer to look at it as a whole system. And I think you have a piece of this whole system, but I don't think you have the whole system yet. And let me tell you why I say that to you respectfully. You're bringing up cancer, and when you bring up cancer, people get very nervous. So you're bringing up a hot button, so I'm going to talk to you regarding the hot button. You haven't brought up the fact that our seeds are genetically modified, and a lot of the food that people are eating in the United States of America is genetically modified, totally altered, and is disrupting hormones, disrupting our nervous system, disrupting digestion. It goes on and on. You haven't talked about the fact that there is a water infiltration that has been going on for the last 40 years in the United States and in other countries where they're putting toxins and chemicals and dumping pharmaceuticals and toxic agents into our water. You haven't talked about the fact that they're dumping different kind of toxins in our air, which goes to our land, which goes to our food, which goes to our animals, which ends up in the agricultural supply. You haven't talked about the fact that we have hundreds and thousands of microwave stations around America that are beaming microwave and altering our immune systems, our brain, our ability to digest our heart and altering us and making us weaker and weaker, including our immunity. Nobody's talking about the whole system of what is causing cancer. And so when you bring up that we're taking too many nutrients, it pales to me compared to the whole system of effects that are going on. Do you understand what I'm saying? 100% I agree with you, Kim. I haven't gotten to those points. Well, I'm getting to it now because when you bring up cancer, I want the audience to be very clear that if you're going to bring up cancer, I'm bringing up the other effects of cancer that are not even on the table for human biology. Okay. I wanted to bring it up urgently right now as part of the causation matrix with respect to a whole system of why cancer is happening faster and faster. Your piece is a piece of what is being altered. The central nervous system of our biology is being altered by five or six or seven components. And yours is one of them, in my view. Indeed, Kim, I 100% agree with you there. It is one of them that was the topic we were currently talking about. But I think you have to be very clear when you talk about cancer as a communication steward. When you say it's the cause of, you have to be very clear. It is one of the causes of. That's what I'm clarifying. In any disease condition, there's never a cause. There's always contributory causes. Because you can get 10 people in exactly the same environment, in exactly the same lifestyle, and five of them would get the disease and five would not. So it is almost never possible to identify one cause for one effect. Life is much more complicated than that. The same, for example, when I mentioned omega-3 fatty acids, that's one nutrient out of roughly 400 nutrients that the human body needs. The biggest problem I have with the supplement industry is they identify two or three sometimes 10 or 15 nutrients, make a big issue of that and use that to market things. How many people are aware that we need about 300 to 400 different nutrients in a very delicate balance for us to be healthy? And that balance is not 
necessarily the same for two people. We are different. Not only do we carry different genes and different personalities, but we go through different biorhythms and we are at different phases of our lives. Um, it is dangerous to simplify things, but it is just so much easier in the marketing of something when it is simplified. So, yes, you are quite right. Things are much more complicated. Things become a bit more simple if you um, specialize in one field. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions. Manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. Talk a little bit, if you would, doctor, about your work with fasting. Talk to me about how long you fast. How long have you advocated other people fast? Is it water fast? Do people drink soup? What kind of fast are you advocating? And tell us what happens from it. In a nutshell, fasting or fasting means not eating. So in my definition, you are only fasting if your taste buds and your nose perceive no stimulus. That means there must be no taste and no smell entering your body, else you are not in a state of fasting. Why no smell? Because your hypothalamus perceives the smell and then sends messages to your digestive system to tell it, I'm eating. That is if it smells it from the cavity of the mouth. You can probably smell something from outside, but if you eat something with a smell, you get the combination of taste and smell. In, incidentally, smell is the bulk of our taste. You know, we, our tongue can only taste a few very simple tastes. The nose perceives most of the taste that we ingest. But if you put anything into your body with a smell or a taste, the message to your body is, I am eating. When we are fasting, we want the body to reverse its metabolism. It must stop living 
from food and it must start living from the reserves that's in the body. It is almost easier to compare your body to a motor car. I often use this because men understand motor cars reasonably well and women understand bodies quite well. Now, I'm a man, so I'm going to compare the body to a motor car. Our bodies are similar to these modern motor cars that has two machines. It has a petrol engine and it has an electric engine. So it can run either on electricity or on gas. That's what you call petrol, right? Now, if you take that motor car new and you use only one machine, then that car can only live half as long as when you alternate between these two machines. Because if you wear out one of the engines of your car, it can drive no further. If, however, one of the machines can rest while the other one is driving it, that car can last that much longer. Our bodies have two distinct ways of metabolizing, of uh, creating energy. And the one is called anabolism. That is the way we metabolize proteins and carbohydrates. And the other one is called catabolism. That's the way we uh, metabolize fats. Now, if we eat every day, we tend to stay anabolic all the time. And if we fast, the body goes catabolic. So animal studies have found that if an animal's diet is reduced to only two-thirds of the recommended intake of energy, protein, vitamins, minerals, that animal would live between 50% and 100% longer. In other words, they live up to twice as long. They're more energetic, more fertile, and they learn better. It was found to get almost the same effect if the animal were given 100% of its so-called RDA, but it was fed only every second day. So it's a day of eating and a day of fasting. Day of eating and a day of fasting. Uh, promoted nowadays as the zero one zero uh, lifestyle approach. So the philosophy behind that, Kim, is that the body has two engines called anabolism and catabolism. And if we keep feeding the body every day, we use only anabolism, which means we take the pristine, unused catabolism to the grave with us, whereas we could have used it to good effect throughout life. There has been a lot of hearsay and both probably medical dogma and some medical valid science that if you fast, you're also losing muscle mass. Now, how do you know you, the doctor, Andre from South Africa, how do you know that when you go into catabolism that you are totally in a fat metabolism mode and not taking away your muscle mass? How do you know that? Because, uh, dear team, I measured my muscle mass. I use several different techniques. One's called somatometrics, where we use uh, calipers measuring the body fat content. Uh, the other one is electrical impedance measurements. There's um, metabolism rate measurements. And then I have not eaten for more than six days in a row for the past 30 years. So I've been fasting at least a period of 30 to 60 hours once a week, very often for more than a week. And uh, now at the age of almost pressing 60, 
you can come measure my muscle mass. It's all there. So you're, you're we saying measure these the, things. Over time, you've consistently measured your muscle mass and you have not lost muscle mass. That's correct. Hundreds of my patients also, we've also done that. The, the reason why they say you lose muscle when you stop eating is because most people eat much more protein than what they need. Much more protein. The American Medical Vegan Association, that is doctors who are vegans, have advocated a diet with between 5 to 10% protein. And if you eat more than that, the body is forced to convert protein back to carbohydrate because you know all proteins in nature are made out of carbohydrate by the addition of nitrogen that turns carbohydrates into acids called amino acids. So if you eat these amino acids all the time and you stop eating, then your body will naturally scrounge for amino acids and that can indeed affect your body uh, muscles. But if you feed your body a decent natural energy, which is primarily carbohydrates in the form of vegetables, green leaves, uh, fruits, and you stop eating, your body will first look for carbohydrates, of which there's about 24 hours worth of storage in the muscles and in the liver, where after the body will then more likely turn to fat. We also help guide the body towards burning fat in a famine or in a fasting period by actually literally eating fat as the last meal before the fasting period. I uh, make up meals for my patients, which is dominated by fat and low in protein. doesn't have to be a big meal. It can be a small meal. But that's what they eat before they stop eating so that the body is nudged in the direction of a fat-based metabolism during the fast. Then we measure the breakdown of fat by measuring the body composition and the uh, thickness of the fat layers under the skin. And we measure for the production of ketones in the urine. Now, ketones is the breakdown product of the fatty acids. And in looking at all of those, we know that roughly 24 to 30 hours after you stop eating, the body starts burning fat. If you are used to doing that, if however you are not used to doing that, yes, then indeed, dear Kim, uh, you will find that people tend to initially break down protein until the body gets the message that I'm not eating, uh, you better start using the uh, the reserves. Your body has three big reserves of energy. The first is called blood sugar. Now, your blood sugar lasts only about six to eight hours. And that is why you will notice if you stop eating, you tend to get hungry after six or eight hours. Once the blood sugar is gone, and if you do not give in to your body's so-called feeling of hunger, then the glycogen, which is a form of carbohydrate stored in the liver and in the muscles, is mobilized, and your body will continue burning that for up to 24 hours after you stop eating, and then you get hungry again. If you not eat that hunger, then the body has a chance of reverting 
to protein because protein, after all, is just a form of carbohydrate with an acid added to it to turn it into an amino acid. If, however, you have nudged your body towards fat by having that fatty meal and what we do here called hydrotherapies, that's a system of activities to guide your hungry blood towards the fat deposits of your body, then we have found that your body preferentially use fat. Um, now, <clears throat> we get the blood into the fat by a system that includes exercise, uh, and exercise is a very important part of a good fasting regimen. We do not do the passive fasting here where people sit waiting to feel miserable, but people keep very active to both cleanse the fat, cleanse the blood, and mobilize the fat into the blood. So by toning the skin where most of the fat is located, we actually almost literally squeeze it into the blood so the body is guided towards burning fat rather than protein. So in answer to your question, yes, we are all worried about the fact that many studies on fasting indicated that people break down muscle. But that's because they taught their bodies to break down muscle because they eat muscle. They make, <laughs> they turn uh, real food, plants, into animals, and then they eat animals. Now, animals, when you eat them, that's primarily muscles. And therefore, you teach your body to burn muscles. Those same studies that have found that people break down muscle in a period of famine should be done on people who do not eat muscle and then you will not find the same results. We find it a lot easier for us vegetarians to revert to the fasting metabolism than what it is for people who eat muscles. Very clear. I want you to also talk about the part in the beginning that you were laying out for us about how the body really needs to get rid of stuff rather than to be putting stuff in. So talk about the detail of that for the audience, would you? What does the body need to get rid of? How does it do it? How should it do it? Every cell in your body is a little machine. For a machine to work, it needs to get substances, like your car needs to get fuel to run. But the plain act of being alive causes each and every cell to produce a bit of waste. Just like in your car, if I can use that parable, uh, you put perfectly pure fuel into your car. You put perfectly pure oil into your car and you filter the air that goes into the machine. But after a few thousand miles, or as we say, kilometers, the oil in that engine is dirty. You didn't put that dirt in there. The air filters are dirty. You didn't put the dirt in there. But a lot of stuff has developed in the oil sump of that engine that needs to get out of that engine because it's harming that engine. Now, every cell in your body is a little engine. It gets fuel from outside. We call it carbohydrate. It gets building materials from outside. We call that proteins. It gets other types of building materials we call fats. And then inside the cell, there's a little machine. And some cells 
makes hormones, and some cells makes movement, and some cells makes thoughts. In other words, electricity. But every cell is a little machine. Nutrients goes in, products comes out, and that product can take either a physical form or a form of electricity or whatever else. But something stays behind. That cell gets old because things build up in it. Therefore, the body is exposed to all kinds of substances we need to get rid of. These substances are not only formed in the body, but it's also inhaled. As you pointed out earlier, our world is full of chemicals. Our world is full of pharmaceuticals. Our world is full of colorants and flavorants and preservatives and vapors and toxins and pollutants. All of those gets into our body. Now, my colleagues would ridicule the idea that your body builds up toxins. They say, but your body has mechanisms to get rid of these. They point out that the kidneys filters the blood all the time. And they're right. The kidneys filters the blood. But the kidney can only get rid of waste that is soluble in water. Because what the kidney filters out is basically water. Now, you can really go try, put a piece of butter on a bowl of water and turn that water until the butter is dissolved. You will be turning for several generations and it will still not happen. Now, why do I say that? It's just to give you an idea of what is the difference between substances that can dissolve in water substances that cannot dissolve in water. Now, substances that can dissolve in water, the kidneys can filter out of your body, yes. But substances that cannot dissolve in water, they are formed in our bodies, we inhale them, we eat them, it's absorbed through the skin, but the bulk comes from our internal metabolism, like that engine that's running. So, some of the toxins that forms in our body or some of the waste that forms in our body or that enters our body is not water-soluble. We call that hydrophobic. Things that dissolve in water is called hydrophilic. Literally, it loves water. Hydrophobic chemicals, on the other hand, literally hates or fears water. So that is what we could cover for after hours that you have done. A lot of people are under the impression now from the new knowledge that the liver is completely overworked trying to detoxify stuff that it was never made to detoxify. Exactly. Now, it was made to detoxify. That, well, but I mean, I'm talking made... about 16,000 chemicals. Our livers were not made for that. The liver can handle fat-soluble chemicals. But the portal of exit from the liver to the outside world sits high up in your gut. So these chemicals have a tendency to be reabsorbed back into the blood. But because the blood is based on water, now think again of what I said, if you put butter on water and try to dissolve it. Right. When these chemicals get back into your blood, the blood uh, runs through the body. Yes, perhaps it can get back to the liver for another try. But if it passes by a 
fat cell on the way, that chemical will leave the blood and go into the fat cell. And that holds for natural and unnatural chemicals. If they are not soluble in water, but they get into your body, they are uncomfortable in the blood, the blood is uncomfortable carrying it, and therefore those chemicals leave the blood and enter the fat cells. Now there's fat cells all over your body. Incidentally, the highest concentration of cholesterol in the whole world is in your brain. Right. And things that dissolve in fat dissolve very well in cholesterol. So the epidemic of um, dementia that the world is currently facing, you're very well aware of that one, I'm sure. Oh, yes, I am. Yeah, we know now there's a new peak in this epidemic happening in younger people now. Perhaps a large contributor to that is the fact that all these fat-soluble chemicals uh, is accumulating in our fats, including the brain, including the membranes and the insulation materials of the brain, and uh, contributing to the dementia epidemic we're having. In the olden days, these chemicals were better eliminated because people didn't have deodorants to stop the glands under the arms, for example, from working. And the glands under the armpits are glands that specifically eliminate fat-soluble um, sebum, which can carry toxins out of your body. People sweat less because we drive in cars and trains and trucks and elevators instead of getting the exercise. So fat-soluble chemicals get one or two chances to be eliminated when they enter the blood. Thereafter, those chemicals enter the fat and they sit in the fat, and they accumulate there uh, to the extent that they eventually are responsible for a very large part of our degenerative diseases, like the things we uh, associate with aging. What we try to achieve when we fast is we force the body to burn that fat. Now, when that fat is burned, all the chemicals that was dissolved in that fat has no more hiding place. It is forced to escape back into the blood, and then the blood gets another opportunity to deliver those toxins to the elimination organs. Now, I'm going to quickly mention the most important elimination organs to you for fat-soluble chemicals. Water solubles are eliminated by the kidney and the sweat glands and the tear glands. Fat-soluble chemicals are eliminated in the sinuses, the tonsils, a little bit in the salivary glands of the mouth, the biggest one in the intestine, the liver through the gallbladder, the appendix, uh, and the colon. But by far the biggest is the skin. And then if these fat-soluble chemicals can uh, evaporate, also the lungs. During our way of fasting, we try to activate the skin as much as possible to do its part in eliminating these chemicals from the body. And therefore, we've developed a system of what we call hydrotherapies that targets the skin to be more active in eliminating these. And having developed this little system, 
we have found that people who would usually get severe headaches when they miss a meal no longer get that headache. People who get a lot of muscle pains when they miss a day or two of eating and no longer get those muscle pains because we get the toxins out of the system as quick as they are liberated or released. How do you as a doctor know when you're getting the toxins out of the skin? Are you brushing the skin? What are you doing? Can you explain it to us? Just give us a little glimpse. How I know that they come out is I've measured in about 6,000 of my patients a specific liver enzyme called alanine transaminase. And you know, we doctors start using big words when we don't know what we talk about because at least it sounds like we do. But anyway, this enzyme that forms in the liver uh, gets activated when the liver has to work hard on detoxifying certain chemicals. Now, we have noticed when people stop eating, this enzyme increase, which means the liver becomes aware of a bigger burden of these toxins. But as I mentioned, the liver can only get rid of toxins via the bile system, and the bile drips into the upper part of the gut. So because we have a low-fiber diet in the modern world, a lot of these toxins are simply reabsorbed into the gut. So our main organ of elimination is the skin, and we use the skin to get rid of these toxins. The way we do so is through five steps of activities. We call it the elimination cycle, and I'll quickly mention to what these five steps are. The first one is called the dynamic phase. That is plain exercise. What we do during exercise is to generate an excess of blood flow in the body. The second phase is the tonic phase. That is That can also be called massage. What we do there is tone up the skin with a massage of various sorts. Uh, you know there are hundreds of forms of massage in the world. We specifically want to get this increased level of circulation diverted to the skin. The third step is the pyrophase or the heat phase. That uh, is applying heat to the skin simply in a steam room or a sauna or a hot bath or a hot shower. We now activate the sweat glands. So the blood containing these toxins or chemicals having been diverted to the skin in the uh, massage phase is now filtered by the sweat glands. The toxins, chemicals, waste is eliminated and the nutrients is retained in the blood. The fourth phase called the cryophase or the cold phase. Um, some people jump through the ice into a cold river, you know, like they do in the uh, Scandinavian countries. Some take a cold shower, some plunge in a cold pool, or some just walk around so that the sweat can evaporate. That causes the blood vessels in the skin to close down because when your skin gets cold, the blood vessels close down. So when the blood vessels close down in the skin, this purified blood that has just been purified by the sweat glands is now diverted back to the deeper parts of the body and supply energy to that. The last phase allows the body's balance mechanisms, that what we refer to as homeostasis, just to balance out everything again. Now, ever since I've instituted these five steps um, at uh, Wuhland here in South Africa, I have 
not found any person during a fast get sick anymore. They don't get headaches. They don't get fatigue. They sleep a lot better. They actually feel a lot healthier. Uh, but on that note, just to mention, I've been using fasting as the mainstay of therapy here for about 56 years now. And we have a record of zero mortality. Uh, no person has ever succumbed to this therapy. Over 36 years, more than a 1,000 patient years in a facility without a single mortality. I think I can be quite proud of that bit of statistics. But uh, ever since this specific elimination cycle has been introduced, we also never, ever had to take a patient to a hospital either. So 10,000 patient years without hospitalization, I think that's also reasonable statistics, particularly in view of the fact that many people who come to a place like this come because they are chronically unwell. It's not necessarily very healthy people that would visit places like this. Obviously, your experience in working with people that are unwell has been phenomenal. How has been your experience with people that are overweight, like 40, 50, 60 and above uh, pounds overweight, and how fasting has helped them uh, re-energize fat metabolism? I have now to just get my mind around pounds because we think in the metric system here. Um, (laughs) the, the The longest continuous fast that I've supervised here was 45 days. And that was in a patient who came all the way from Latvia uh, because uh, he was dying. He was put off work because uh, uh, medical faculty there said um, he had a disease they couldn't fathom. And uh, he was quite a few pounds. How many pounds? I have not seen. He was very overweight. Anyway, in these 45 days, he lost one kilogram per day. Now, a kilogram is 2.2 pounds. So in 45 days, he lost a little bit more over 100 pounds of weight. Uh, But what's interesting in this period of time, his heart failure resolved, his liver failure resolved, his gout disappeared, his high cholesterol gone, um, his irregularity in the heartbeat disappeared, and we took him off every medicine that he was on. Uh, I think it was something like six or eight medicines that the doctors um, in the old uh, Russia gave him there uh, to try and keep him alive. Now, that's one example. <clears throat> but, of course, as I said, I've had at least 30,000 uh, patients here of whom at least 10,000 have fasted for several days at a time. And my statistics on that indicate that the liver working reasonably hard on toxins. Uh, and I've had at least one patient who was booked in for preparing himself for a liver transplant uh, to get his lungs and other organs in a good enough condition to undergo the liver transplant. And after the treatment here, the liver transplant was cancelled because his liver got back to functioning normal. Now, please, I do understand as a scientist that anecdotal evidence is not accepted in scientific circles. And uh, you referred to Medscape earlier. They do have peer-reviewed studies where people check that, you know, is your data reliable? Is your statistical analysis correct? I just want to say one thing about the peer review part since you brought it up, and that is that we did a whole piece on peer review. The thing to know about peer review, if you don't know this, is that while you and I and the rest of us 
have been taught over the many years to accept everything that has been peer reviewed. There's a dark side to peer review, and that is that the peer review process guards the gate of almost all new discovery. And so whoever are the invested interests in the peer review process, guarding the gate of what is being touted as sound and stable and accurate, that is being guarded by those at the peer review who don't even allow the people that they're peer reviewing to know who they are. I used to think peer review was like the godly process of verifying authenticity and stability and integrity, but it isn't. I want to tell you that, and if you don't know that, you need to know how peer review works to really understand how flawed and how unethical and how the people in peer review guard the gate and block discoveries around the world that would alter everything for everybody. And it's mainly economic interests. Go ahead. Well, I can't fully disagree with you there, dear Kim. I've tried to get ethical clearance for uh, research in this facility of ours, and specifically, as I mentioned earlier, for the research on how we can use uh, fasting in the treatment of cancer. Now, I wrote to a very prominent uh, medical faculty in this country, uh, and the professor in uh, chemotherapy wrote back to me. He said, there is no place for such research in scientific circles. <laughs> uh, and he said, research uh, is so expensive for a single medicine, it can cost 100 million U.S. dollars, which means that no country in the world except the U.S. of A can do research of this kind. Now, what, what did that tell me? That told me I'm desperately wanting to help patients, and I'm, I believe I've discovered a technique that can do so. And interesting enough, the University of St. Petersburg in Russia is fully in agreement with that, but the medical faculty here says, no, if you're not in the United States and you don't have $100 million, you can't do research on that. So I think we're very much on the same page there, Yeah. but I we shouldn't discard the good with the bad. Within the medical faculties in universities, there are many of my colleagues who are not only after money. You know, most uh, professors in surgery or medicine can make a lot more money out in private practice, but they stay in the academic for the love of it. I know there are not that many, but there's a lot of them that do it for the love of their fellow human. I do understand. I do understand. And they will scrutinize research and they will read journals and they will look at things. Uh, and then there's other communities like um, North Korea and um, Cuba, you know, that little island on your coast, where there are a philosophy that wants to prove us wrong in our philosophy. So if they were to discover something that proves us wrong, that proves all our medicines wrong, they're going to make a big issue of that. Not everybody can be bought I agree with you. I'm not arguing that every single person in the medical industry and in academia is wrong and bad. What I'm telling you is that the peer review process is flawed, it's unethical, and it lacks integrity. 
that's news for me because, you know, I've always uh, tried to see who are the people who reviewed these and what are their interests. They have to declare their interests if they review articles. But yes, I'm, I'm very, very much aware of this. Uh, when you look at um, articles published about new medicines in particular, uh, how skewed they are when you really read some uh, journal articles and then you read the uh, journal articles that are quoted by the by the industry there's sometimes a big difference but having said all of that that the pharmaceutical industry is not only the big bad wolf you know that the bulk of our knowledge of the human body and mind that we have gathered in the last hundred years was directly or indirectly financed by the pharmaceutical industry because that is where the big money comes from for medical research. It is true that they often quash um, research findings that uh, would not profit their bottom line, but at least some academic people still go uh, on and publish these things. That's why, for example, I've just looked here I have found um, in the last uh, last year, I wrote about 50 articles on the damaging side effects of supplements that was published in uh, journals. It was hidden. It, it, you know, if you do a Google search, you get them on page 50 because it's not being paid for. But uh, with good, decent, solid research from people who have absolutely nothing to gain there, have found... Um, the side effects and dangers of vitamins and minerals and other supplements. You know what? It would be good when you talk about danger for supplements, when you talk about danger for minerals, it depends what we're talking about. It's like we're having this sweeping conversation about that whole area. What's the word? It's like ideologically limited to say that there's danger in minerals, there's danger in supplements. Are you kidding? I mean, again, I think it's out of context. I hear what you're saying, that it's been blocked and it's because it hasn't been paid for your articles. It's not going to be something that people can read and evaluate, which is too bad. But maybe there's some articles that you've written on your website that our listeners can check out. Equally sweeping is the statements that uh, all of uh, scientific medicine and research is this big, bad pharmaceutical world. Andre, that wasn't what I said. I'm talking about the peer review process. I'm talking about the way that you can identify who is at the helm of something is to look at the process. The process identifies and transmits and gives you a complete articulation of what is occurring. And when you have a denial of holistic thinking, when you have a inability to share information, when there's stuff being hidden, when you have deception in a process which touts itself as the gold standard, you have to take it at the level of what it is and say this gold standard is fake gold. It's not a real gold standard. It's a standard that is set up to block most of new discovery, including what you're talking about. So that's all I wanted to say. My issue is about peer review and how it really functions. I'm not saying there aren't good people everywhere. There are. There are even good people in the big, bad pharmaceutical world. But I'm telling you that the peer review process is more flawed than you can imagine. And when you get inside it and you learn how it works all the way from start to finish, you'll get it.
Yes, indeed. So is not exactly that same argument applicable to things called supplements, where the word supplement apparently sells better than the word uh, medicine, and where a lot of objective research uh, have found absolutely no benefits. Actually, there's a lot of research coming out recently that has found that uh, supplements reduce life expectancy, not only in animals, but also in people. And I very much sincerely believe that we are keeping the diseases alive by too much nutrition. That is the, the viewpoint, I guess, we have been debating a little bit uh, over the past few minutes. My end is more about the peer review and what peer review articles are saying. But I do understand what you're saying. Talk a little bit about what's next for you and what it is that people can do around the world who may be hearing this, who want to start fasting, at least to start with something. What should we do? There is a website in Britain. I have absolutely no financial interest of any sorts in that website. So please, it's an unbiased advice. I do consult there for free. Um, it's called fastingconnection.com. And uh, people can for definitely read a few very interesting articles and arguments on that site. I call myself the fast doctor and I have a little website called that. But I haven't even worked on that for a long time. There is unfortunately very little literature in the field because there is not the same amount of money as is in the pharmaceutical or supplement type of industries. So uh, we do not get the same kind of sponsors for research, and we often have to uh, finance our own research. Bottom line is, there's only one manufacturer on this planet with no ulterior motives, and that is Mother Nature. Mother Nature makes food. She makes whole food. She makes vegetables. She makes fruit. That is the basis of all food on earth. And <clears throat> incidentally, I recently had a, a company visit me here who wanted to sell supplements to me. And they say they wanted to show me how deficient I am because I haven't touched a thing like a supplement in my life, at least not willingly. I did take some about 30 years ago before I learned better. And they had a beautiful little instrument that could measure the beta carotene levels in the skin. And uh, they showed all their measurements because they take all their beautiful carotene supplements. And they said, let me measure your skin. Mine was off the scale higher than any of theirs from plain, good, natural nutrition. The only manufacturer with no ulterior motives, once again, is Mother Nature. And every process that any nutrient is put through after it has grown from sunlight and clear air, every process adds to the toxicity and every process reduces the nutrient value. Now, when you look at a supplement, it is more processed than the most processed junk food on the planet. So how you can make up for processing uh, good food into junk, how you can make up for that by taking something that's even more processed. Uh, that just speaks books for the marketing abilities of the industry that manufactures these things. 
There's only one manufacturer that has your best health and well-being at heart. That's Mother Nature. All foods, all foods and all nutrients on this planet is manufactured by a subcellular little organelle, and I'm using a big word because it sounds so impressive. It's manufactured <laughs> by a thing called chlorophyll. You know what chlorophyll is? Yeah. Chlorophyll is what turns grass and trees and everything green. The bulk of the chlorophyll is the plankton in the oceans. That is the only thing that produces food. From there on, food goes down the food chain. And as it goes down the food chain, uh, from leaves to fruit to seeds to whatever else we eat lower down, it adds toxicity and it reduces nutrient value. I calculated once uh, that a good hamburger patty has been eaten 21 times by the time the uh, consumer eats it. And I've calculated it can contain the equivalent of almost a ton of plankton. Uh, if I quickly run through how I get to that calculation, sure. a ton of plankton becomes less than half a ton of krill, becomes less than a quarter of a ton of uh, shrimp, becomes less than a few hundred pounds of uh, little fish, becomes barely a 50 pounds of big fish, which becomes about 20 pounds of fish meal, which becomes about uh, two uh, pounds. I always have to think back on pounds. We think in kilograms here. Uh, anyway, of chicken droppings, which is fed to cattle. So eventually you make about a pound of um, beef out of a ton of plankton. And along the way, the um, pollutants are concentrated uh, into that. So it eventually has a very high concentration. But now... The companies take those products into a factory and turn some powders and uh, pills and stuff out of it and tell and call it supplements and tell you that it's good for you. I simply believe it's not good for you. It keeps your sick cells alive and your healthy cells would have survived a lot better if you simply bought everything you eat from the greengrocer the bottom line is that you're passionate about the fact that these supplements are not natural to the body and they're processed elements, correct? That is part of the problem, yes. And uh, we don't need more. We need better quality. But quantity doesn't replace quality. And quality only comes in food. And many, many studies have found that when you take a nutrient out of its original uh, form, it changes properties. For example, it was found that if people eat a diet that is rich in beta-carotene, they get less cancers. But if they take beta-carotene supplements, they get more cancers, com uh, considerably more. And the same as holds for so many other nutrients. When you take it out of the way that Mother Nature packs it, then it changes. That is the one passion. We must think, eat things naturally and not processed. And every process adds toxicity and reduces nutri uh, nutrient value. And the second thing is, which I'm equally passionate about, is we are not designed to eat every day. Your poor digestive system, your poor metabolism will burn out. How would you feel if you were to work 18 hours per day, seven days per week, for 60 years non-stop, 
you, you will be totally burnt out. And that's how, why so many people today develop the, the degenerative diseases of the modern lifestyle. We need to use both our metabolism, anabolism and catabolism. We need to give the body an opportunity to do spring cleaning by reversing the flow of substance, not into, not into our body, but from our body to the outside world. And that is what happens when you fast. So the two aspects, eating naturally, as plant-based as possible, and fasting regularly. That's the two passions that I hope I'll be around for another at least 60 years to see in practice. I look forward to meeting you in South Africa and having continued discussions with you. And I want to thank you very, very much, Dr. Kneer, in being on its rainmaking time and for staying the course with a rather heated dialogue with me, as well as I want to thank you, Dr. Andre Kruger, which a lot of people will call you that name because that's how they'll read it at The Fast Doctor, the hyphen fast hyphen doctor. Dot com And also, please, ladies and gentlemen, go to hoogland, H-O-O-G-L-A-N-D dot C-O dot Z like zebra A and find out more about his work. And Andre, I really want to thank you for taking your time out of your busy evening in South Africa and commend you for your dedication and your passion and your commitment to optimal health. Thanks again. Thank you, Kim. And I'm thrilled by the notion of your visiting this country of ours. Thank you so much. It's rainmaking time.